All right, very good. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me in them this evening to Mark 5. Mark 5, looking at verses 1 through 17 this evening. Today we explore Mark's first record of Jesus' travels out of the region of Capernaum, apart from uh, the notable exception of him being baptized in the Jordan, not really ministering at that time. Uh, this is the first kind of ministry idea here in the, in the book of Mark, outside of Capernaum, even in fact outside of Galilee. But as we've discussed several times at this point, uh, we will not be following Jesus regularly into Judea until the record of Jesus' final days before his death and his resurrection. Uh, other than that, the book of Mark, the, the gospel of Mark, is very content to rest in Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So we read in Mark chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, and they came over unto the other side of the sea into the country of the Gadarenes. So we follow Jesus today in what is called the country of the Gadarenes. This is a region that is called, and we'll see this a little bit further on in the text, Decapolis. Now, Decapolis was on the southeastern coast of the Sea of Galilee. The region was named for a league of 10 cities that were created around 65 BC by Rome when they took control of that region from Syria. Nearly 100 years before the events of Mark 5, then, this region was conquered by Rome, and it was uh, named Decapolis. It was allowed generally to govern themselves under Rome's larger authority, and in this, it's very similar to what we saw with Judea and Samaria and Galilee, right? Each one had their own kind of governing body that was over them. Of course, in Judea, we, saw, we see that the Sanhedrin were really in charge, right? And yes, you had Roman officials and whatever else and, the, and, and, and such, but we do see that there was also some measure of self-governance under, as, as a vassal state, in a sense, under the Roman Empire. Now, it is worth noting here that this region does not actually contain Jewish people in the Roman Empire. This is a Syrian region of the Roman Empire. Decapolis is a Syrian region, and this is going to be kind of important because it's been often asked, why was a herd of swine on that hill, right? Now, why would the Jews be raising swine? Well, they weren't. Uh, this is not a Jewish region. This is a Syrian region. Uh, so that's hence the reason why those herd of swine were there. We'll talk about that when we, we get there. Um, Jesus is going across the sea then, right? And we talked about that last week. Jesus goes across the sea. Uh, they, there's a great storm. Uh, the, the disciples were afraid. Master, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus calms the, the wind and the waves. And, and we talked through all of that last week. So now he has calmed the winds and the waves and they, they continue their journey and they end up in that region of Gadara, stepping beyond not only the Galileans, but actually reaching beyond here, the Jews. Now, Gadara was not directly on the coast. It was further inland. Notice here, we do not see that he went to Gadara. He went to the country of the Gadarenes, right? So this would be a region, uh, we might consider this to be a suburb of sorts, maybe, um, uh, within the region, uh, within Decapolis, and then the region generally of Gadara. So we continue then, verse 2. And when he was come out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. So Jesus gets out of the ship into Capolis, and the Bible says immediately he's met with a man who came out of the tombs and he had an unclean spirit. Now this account is also given in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, and Luke 8, verse 26, with the Matthew account telling us that there were two possessed men that came out of the tombs to meet Jesus, whereas the account in Mark and the account in Luke speak only of one man. And we do not necessarily need to see this as a contradiction, simply as a difference. If my family had gone out to eat this afternoon and this evening I told you my wife and I went out to eat, the fact that I did not mention my children being there is not a contradiction nor a lie. I simply desired to emphasize a different aspect of the afternoon. And so the fact that these other two uh, gospels do not speak to the other man there is not necessarily something um, that is a contradiction or a lie or it's simply uh, that which, well, it is an omission, I guess, uh, but, but, but not necessarily one that is omitted by, uh, um, historically, it's just simply omitted for the purpose 
of the text at hand. It would appear that there was a certain man who was, we might say, the spokesman for the devils that had possessed these men. And the focus on Mark and Luke is to consider this man with whom Jesus interacts. And so the Bible says that when Jesus arrived, this man immediately came out of the tombs. The people did not have burial places in their cities. Uh, they would have had tombs on the outskirts. And this region was known to be somewhat contoured, somewhat rocky in this particular area. So it would appear that these tombs had been carved out into the limestone hills that are in that area and had made uh, tombs, but also effectively caves, uh, spaces large enough for men to enter and certainly would have been sufficient for these men to seek some measure of shelter from the elements uh, as they were living uh, more or less outcast from their society. And of course, the text tells us that this man had an unclean spirit. Now, verses three through five give us insight into the character of this unclean spirit. The Bible says, who had, and this is the unclean spirit, who had, or the man with the unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs and no man could bind him, no, not with chains. Because that he had been often bound with fetters and chains and the chains had been plucked asunder by him and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. And always night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying and cutting himself with stones. So the characteristics of this demon's influence on this man are dramatic. The man was an outcast from civilized society, and so he lived among these tombs and among these mountains. They would seek to bind him as a means by which to control him, and they could not do so. They would bind him with ropes or with chains, and the man would simply break them into pieces. No man could tame him so that he was night and day in the mountains and in the tombs, and the Bible says he was crying and cutting himself. Now, let's talk about the characteristics that we find here regarding this unclean spirit. If we were to describe this demonically possessed man, we would use three primary descriptive elements. The first is that he was out of control. The second is that he was excessively strong. And the third is that he was in torment, in torment to the point where he was engaging in self-harm. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. But those are the characteristics that we see of the demonic influence. Lack of self-control, unique capabilities, uh, incredible strength in this sense, and then torment, crying and engaged in self-harm. And in this man's interaction with Jesus, we actually glean another characteristic of this demonic possession. Look at verses six and seven. But when he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshiped him and cried with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. The man saw Jesus coming off the boat and it would seem that there was enough space between the coast and the tombs that this demonically possessed man saw them from a distance and he immediately did what all demon-possessed men have done throughout the book of Mark. He came and he bowed down to Jesus, recognizing Jesus' authority and submitting himself to him. And of course, this is always mentioned because Mark is that book, right? Mark is the gospel of the authority of the Son of God. That's what we're emphasizing throughout the book. We see authority emphasized again and again and again. And here we see another instance of it. But then we see something interesting. This man cries to Jesus with a loud voice, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? Now, the phrase, what have I to do with thee, is one that is used six times in our King James Bibles. Three times in the Old Testament, three times in the New Testament. Each time, the idea behind it is that of what business do we have one with another? And it doesn't necessarily mean that there's no business at all. It simply means what business, as in relation to the context at hand, what, what business do we have one with another? So the idea here is that the demon is doing something, Jesus is doing something, and the demon says, I want to be left alone to be able to do what I'm doing. What business do we have interacting with one another? But all the more so, it appears that the demon is fearful of what Jesus might do to him. And there's some irony in this, isn't there? That this man is in the tombs crying day and night and cutting himself. He's in torment to the point of self-harm. And then the demon comes up and says, Jesus, I don't want to be tormented. Well, maybe you should have thought of that beforehand, right? And so we see this demon fearful of what Jesus might do. And this is something that we see in verse seven, where he says, I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. Now, what did the demon mean by this? What torment did Jesus do to demonic spirits? We haven't seen any of the other spirits necessarily speak to torment. And yet this spirit says, please don't torment me. 
And we'll talk about that in a minute through the cross-references, both in Matthew and Luke, both of which are going to give us a little bit of insight here by which I believe we can piece together something pretty important about the nature of the spirit realm and Jesus's interaction with it. Maybe not necessarily important for today, but something that I still think that the Bible uh, explains to us through these interactions between these demons and Jesus. So we'll get there in a minute. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. For he said unto him, come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. So uh, the, the unclean spirit was being called out of the man by Jesus. Verse nine, and he asked him, what is thy name? That's Jesus asking this man, perhaps more specifically the spirit. And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away out of the country. Okay, so we presume Jesus and the demon are speaking here rather than Jesus and the man that is possessed speaking because of how the interaction continues. Jesus says to him, the Bible says, come out of this man, thou unclean spirit. So Jesus is speaking to the spirit and the Bible is referencing, in Mark, the Bible is referencing this spirit as a him, not necessarily as a them. Jesus is speaking to this spirit, but he's speaking to the spirit and Mark is speaking of the spirit in the singular. But then notice how things kind of modify here. Jesus asked the demon's name and the demon says, legion. The reference, the, the word legion there is a reference to the, the, the general structure of the Roman army. Roman infantry men were, were, were um, um, divided into legions and those legions would generally consist of anywhere from three to 5,000 troops depending on the time in history um, that, that you would be speaking of, legions would, would, would modify with different Caesars and different such, uh, different armies. Now, this does not necessarily demand that there were three to 5,000 demons in this man. Uh, we will see that there are 2,000 swine on the, on the hill that the demons are cast out into. And so it's possible that it, it could indeed be in the thousands. But just like we said this morning with uh, Abraham working down from 50 to 10, that we don't need to necessarily get too um, worked up over the number that God stopped at. Well, God, we, gotta, we can get to 10, right? Um, in the same way here, we don't necessarily need to be worked up over the number of people in a legion as it relates to this demon being named or calling himself legion. Uh, it just means there's a lot of them, right? That, that's the idea here. Um, but notice here, when the de demon says, he says his name, my name, he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. So he references himself as a my, and then he references himself as a we. But then in the next verse, Mark uses a combination of singular and plural pronouns for this as well. He, presumably the demon, besought him, that would be Jesus, that he, that would be Jesus again, would not send them a way out of the country. So whether we have a singular kind of representative demon for the whole of the legion of demons that were in this man, uh, we, we see this going back and forth between he and we and they and I and such. Um, now we could attempt here to say that the he, him is Jesus speaking to the man who was possessed and the they, them is speaking to the demons. And that is possible, but it's also quite complicated, maybe a bit confusing and even obscuring to what's going on. And, and I wanted us to think through that because the Matthew account is somewhat different. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, which is our cross-reference, the Bible says this, And when he was come to the other side in the country of the, of the Gergenses, um, uh, Gergesenes, excuse me, uh, there met him two possessed with devils coming out of the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Now, because of the two here, it might be that the two is talking about the two men, or it might be that it's speaking to the, 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 the demons speaking where they're referring to themselves as us. But we do see a little bit of a unique difference here, a unique characteristic of the Matthew account when contrasted with the Mark account. Matthew record, record, records, mm, records, that's the word I'm looking for, a far more consistent reflection of the pronoun references throughout. Mark goes back and forth between the first and third person singular pronouns to speak of this tormented man and his demons. In Matthew, uh, we see uh, whether it's the two men or whether it's the demons inside of these men uh, calling themselves we from the beginning and quite consistently. What have we to do with thee? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? So this could mean a couple of different things. It could simply be that Matthew had the two men and Mark had the one man and so the one man was jumping back and forth and the two men were talking in the, in the collective we. That Matthew counted the demons to be talking in the plurality because they were a plurality, whereas the man with the demons actually spoke when he spoke in Mark and Mark was recording things maybe a little bit more 
as they went about, uh, more literally, we might say, uh, throughout his, his accounting. It could also imply that Jesus was intentionally talking either to the man or to the demons at various times, so that sometimes the man himself would speak and call himself me and I, whereas sometimes the demons would speak and they would call themselves us and we. And of course, of, of these, I've already alluded to the fact, I think the first, the former is more likely because here we see very clearly that it was the demons that were in fear of being tormented. And they say, have you come to torment us before the time? It's possible that in consistency with Mark, uh, the man also might have feared to lose the demons for fear of greater torment without them than with them. This is not uncommon if you've heard accounts of people who have been tormented by demons where uh, a part of the influencing process is the demons uh, um, um, being extremely... um, hard and deceitful on the mind of the tormented person, making them feel as though if, if this demon were to leave them, it would be worse off for them than with them, though they are tormented within them. But it seems likely here that Jesus was talking to the demons the entire time. And, you know, make of it what you will. We just recognize these differences here and we try to reconcile them in our minds. So first we consider the, the pronouns here and, and settle in our minds what we can know and what we can't. Second, we go back to the earlier question. What is this idea of torment? The only thing that we saw in Luke is, or Mark is the idea of torment, and then they ask that they not be sent out of the country. Why would being sent out of the country lead to their torment? And this is where Matthew and Luke really help us. Because Legion does not just ask here in Matthew chapter 8, to not be tormented as he did in Mark. But notice he says here, art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And this is interesting. What does that mean? What time might a demon be expected to be tormented? And I believe the answer to this is found in 2 Peter 2 and Jude. Now Jude is only one chapter along and in verse six we read this. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. So we see in Jude that there are angels that are in chains, everlasting chains under darkness, and that they're reserved unto a day of judgment. We correspond that to 2 Peter 2, which is kind of a sister passage. Verse 4, Peter writes, For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And then he goes on to talk about false teachers. Both of those passages are speaking about the judgment that would rest upon false teachers and corresponding it to the judgment that rests upon these disobedient angels. So the Bible tells us uh, that there are angels who sinned, who kept not their first estate, who did not discharge their authority properly, but rather they left their own habitation, they left where they dwelled and where they had a charge, where they were designed to be, and that these angels were thus, because of this disobedience, because of this sin, they were cast down to hell and delivered into everlasting chains of darkness. Now, we talked uh, many uh, about many things concerning this before. A large contingency of, of the, the broader church world believes that uh, this, these accounts in Jude and in 2 Peter 2 speak of Genesis chapter 6, where the sons of God, which they interpret to be angels, came in into the daughters of men and bare children with them, creating a race of angel-human hybrids reflective of the man-god hybrids of Greek mythology known as the Titans and which are called generally among those circles the Nephilim. These titans would go on to create much evil on earth while the angels who impregnated these women were then thrown into those chains of darkness. And uh, those of you that, that were there when I preached that message in Genesis chapter six know that I do not agree with this interpretation. My Genesis series, I go into detail on why it is I think that that is erroneous and legitimately threatens uh, the actual picture of what Genesis is attempting to teach Uh, and the themes that Genesis is attempting to build. Again, it's not a a huge deal. It's not something that, 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 you know, we split the church over or anything, but it is something that I do not agree with as it relates to these verses. Now, the other thing to note just briefly is the idea of them being cast down to hell. Remember that there are um, several Greek words in our King James Bibles 
that are all called hell. When we talk about uh, our usage of the King James, we recognize that while it is a good translation, and even the use of hell for all of these words is not necessarily an incorrect translation, we also recognize that there are areas of the King James Bible um, that are not ideal as it relates to translational quality. And this is one of them. Uh, in our King James Bibles, there are various Greek words which are all translated hell, though those words are very different in character. We'll talk about them in a moment. The idea of hell in the Bible, uh, the, the, the actual specific idea of hell, is simply the general word for the grave and for the afterlife. It isn't an incorrect translation to use hell to generally describe the various words that our Bible uses because it is the idea of the afterlife and the afterlife comprises numerous places, numerous components as we see them in the word of God. But it also, again, isn't necessarily a good translation because it obscures the character of these words in the different places that the Bible speaks to. So there are four Greek words that speak of various ideas of the afterlife and the spirit realm not connected to heaven, connected to the grave or to eternal punishment. And in uh, that these words are Greek, all of those Greek words kind of mirror the construction of the grave that was reflective of Greek mythology and the Greek mind. This is not because the Bible is affirming that Greek mythology is true. This is because these were the words in the Greek language that corresponded to the ideas that the Bible presents in the Old Testament as it relates to the afterlife. Now, within Greek mythology, when a man died, he went to Hades, which was the grave or the afterlife. I hope that's somewhat visible there. There they would float, according to Greek mythology, down the river Styx. And that river Styx formed the boundary between the living and the dead, the upper world and the underworld. Money would be required for them to be ferried properly, which is where the pagan ideas of placing coins on the eyes or in the mouth of the dead came from. A practice that is used in paganism, one that has not been in biblical Christianity. That's because they needed to provide money for them to be able to pass properly into the afterlife. Those who were not given money by their friends and relatives would be stuck on the shores for 100 years, and the Greek mythology would say many of those would return to the earth as spirits to haunt people who had failed to give them a proper burial. Those who were given the money by their friends and relatives would be led into the land of the dead to be judged by, a, by three judges. We won't get into all of this, if they, uh, all of the, the, the names of the judges and such, but if they were virtuous, they would go to a place called Elysium. It was a place of paradise and the abode of the valiant dead. If they were evil, they would go to a place called Tartarus, a place of torment and the abode of the evil dead. If they were neither, if they were not judged to be valiant or evil, then they would abide in the fields of Asphodel between Elysium and Tartarus. Now, as we think through this, you might, if you are familiar with the scriptures, see glimmers of something that is true here, depending on how we interpret at least Luke 16. In Luke 16, we see what is uh, sometimes called the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Uh, some people believe it's a parable. Others believe it's not a parable, that this is actually insight into the spirit realm itself. But either way, what we see is there's a rich man and then there's a poor man, and that poor man's name is Lazarus. They both die and they go to two different regions of death. One goes to a place called paradise where Lazarus rests in Abraham's bosom. The other was in torment. That would be the rich man. Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom and the rich man was tormented and being burned in flames. We also see from that passage, however, that the rich man could see Lazarus resting in Abraham's bosom but that he could not cross from one region to another because of the great gulf between them. So that Lazarus, uh, the rich man, called out to Father Abraham and said, Father Abraham, ask that Lazarus might dip his finger into cold water and parch my tongue. And that was not possible because there was a great gulf fixed. And so we see in this a, a, a picture of a sort that does to some degree or another bear a measure of resemblance to the Greek myth mythological idea of Hades. So then as Jesus is speaking to these things, he's going to be using the Greek words that correspond to the afterlife in the Greek language. 
We can also, however, see many perversions of paganism, which consume the Greek mythology, obviously paying money to ferry the dead, being judged by works to establish their eternal destination, a middle ground, a sort of purgatory for those who weren't really good or weren't really bad. They'd rest in that, that, that field of, of, of middle ground there. And all of these, of course, are, are, are anti-biblical ideas. These are things that are not found in the Word of God though it should be noted that they're found in many pagan religions to this day, and, and they have characteristically and historically all been found in the Catholic Church as well. But they certainly aren't found in the Bible. And as the Bible uses these words, it is not a confirmation that Greek mythology is accurate, but only that the idea behind the words is a proper reflection of the character of the places that the Bible describes. So there are four Greek words, as I said, that we find in the Word of God. Tartarus or Tartarao, Hades, or hell, Gehenna, Gehenna, or the lake of fire, and then Abusos, which is the abyss or the bottomless pit. Tartarus was the abode of torment. And we would then understand this to be a direct statement of the place that we often think of as hell, a place of conscious torment where the unrighteous are condemned. If we would put it this way, with the rich man and Lazarus, now the Bible says that, that, that um, Lazarus or the rich man went to Hell, it does not use the word Tartarus. It uses the word Hades, yet we might think of it in a Tartarus-type idea there. Hades is a word most naturally translated in our language, hell, but it doesn't necessarily speak to torment. It would be very similar to the idea of Sheol in Hebrew, to the idea of the grave. A person goes to the grave. It's not a statement of whether they've gone to, uh, to, to torment or to paradise. It's simply a statement that says he is now dead. He is in the grave. Now, it can also mean, as it does in Luke 16, the abode of, of torment. It is a word that, that can speak to that idea in context, but it doesn't always demand it. It's the general idea of the grave. Then we have the word Gehenna. Now, Gehenna was a name for the Valley of Hinnom. The Valley of Hinnom was a valley just outside of Jerusalem. It was a place where all of the trash from Jerusalem was collected, and it was placed there, and then it would be burned. And so it was a place where while it was burning and smoldering, they would throw more trash on it and the trash would simply be perpetually burning. And Jesus used this as a picture of torment for the eventual lake of fire. Every time Jesus speaks of Gehenna, he is speaking of a place where the worm dies not, where the fire is not quenched, a place of darkness, a place of outer darkness. It is a place of, of torment. That's the lake of fire. And then finally, we see this idea of the abyss also called in scriptures the deep or the bottomless pit. And this would appear to be, from what we can tell, a subsection of Tartarus. I'll tell you why I think that at least in a minute. And this is what is most often spoken of in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ as the bottomless pit from which come all those demonic abominations led by Apollyon when they torment the earth and torment mankind on the earth. Okay, so let's put all this together. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 tells us that God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down into hell. The word there translated in our King James is hell, but this word here is Tartarus. It's actually the only time in our Bibles where we see this word. Peter uses this word. He uses the word Tartarus. And the Bible tells us that these angels are reserved unto judgment. So they are in that abode of judgment and that abode of torment. And take note of that idea of torment because that's what the demons are afraid of here in, in, in Mark chapter 5, right? Now we go back to the Matthew passage. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, the demon asks that he, if he has uh, come to torment them before the time. In this case, it seems very likely that the time spoken of here is the time that we read about in 2 Peter uh, 2 and in Jude, where God has chosen and ordained that those disobedient angels be judged and then end up in that place of the lake of fire, which the Bible tells us very clearly was reserved for the devil and his angels. That's who it was designed for. That's why God created the lake of fire to begin with for the devil and his angels. That would be torment. And so we see that some demons are chained because of the sins that they committed. Others seem to be free, obviously, as we, uh, Jesus is interacting with Legion on this day, but all are headed toward the day of judgment. But what does it mean then that by casting this demon out, the demon was afraid that he would become subject to torment before the time? And for this last insight, we go to Luke 8. In Luke chapter 8, verses 30 and 31, we read this. 
And Jesus asked him saying, what is thy name? And he said, Legion, because many devils were entered into him. And they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep. So in Luke 8, we don't read of the, demon, the demon's fear of torment. They don't say, are you here to torment us? But they do ask that Jesus would not cast them out and then command them to go into the deep. And this is that word, abusos, the word abyss, the word bottomless pit in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. So then from this, I draw several assumptions. And of course, you're always free to disagree with me. And take note, I am making some assumptions here, right? First, I believe that the bottomless pit called here the deep is a subsection of that place of torment called in Luke 16, hell, called in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, Tartarus. So that those angels who sinned, left their first estate, left their own habitation, are chained in Tartarus, in chains under darkness. So darkness would be Tartarus. Under that darkness is a bottomless pit. And that is where they are chained, waiting the darkness of eternal judgment. Second, it is apparent that these spirits were very concerned that in being cast out of this man, they would then be sent into the bottomless pit where they would experience torment even prior to the time of judgment. And in this, I believe that the angels who sinned and left their first estate rejected God's authority and breached his design, and that is why they ended up in those chains. Not necessarily just because they rebelled against God and followed Satan, but that they also breached a fundamental design of God by which God then cast them into that place of chains. And so this is what I think. I think when Jesus cast out demons, these demons realizing that they were in fact defying God's design by possessing human beings, which is something God has not allowed, given them the right to do, in the same way that the former angels sinned in leaving their habitation, were fearful that because they had breached so, so deeply breached God's design, so brief, uh, deeply breached uh, God's command and God's expectations, God's law, that in doing so, they would be cast into the bottomless pit as were the angels that had gone before them. And so to that end, I believe they petitioned Jesus not to, in Luke chapter 8, be commanded to go into the deep. In Matthew chapter 8, not be tormented before the time. In Mark 5, that he would not torment them because Jesus had the authority in that moment, because of the thing that they did, because of the breach of design that, that was the, the, the demonic possession of a man, overriding the spirit of God that had been given to him by the living God, that Jesus had all authority to cast them into those eternal chains until the time of torment. Just my theory, as I put these passages together. Now that was quite an aside, let's continue in the text. Verses 11 through 14. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him saying, send us into the swine that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine. And the herd ran violently down a steep place into the sea. They were about 2,000 and they were choked in the sea. And they that fed the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country and they went out to see what it was that was done. So the demons asked not to be tormented, and they saw a herd of pigs feeding on the mountains nearby, some 2,000 in number. Remember what I said at the beginning, the region was of Decapolis was a Syrian region from Rome, not a Jewish region. It would have been entirely consistent for the Syrian region of Rome, uh, this area of Decapolis, to be keeping pigs uh, because they aren't Jewish. The, devil speaks then to, the devils speak to Jesus, and request that rather than commanding them to go into the deep, he would give them leave to go into the pigs rather than into the abyss. And Jesus consents. And they enter into the swine. And immediately those pigs uh, kind of do exactly what the man did, right? Went crazy, out of control. Ran violently over the cliff into the sea. Whether these spirits simply drove everything mad that they possessed or whether this was some means by which the spirits could um, kill its host and so be released back into the world without being cast into the deep. Uh, I don't really know. There's possibilities there. But it seems as though this spirit, one of the, the, the unique attributes of this spirit was that it drove the things mad. It was a spirit of chaos. And it drove the things mad that it influenced or possessed. Now, after all of this happened, 
the city heard about it. The men fled into the city. They told the city what had happened. And then they went out to see what happened here. And what they found was this. Mark chapter 5, verses 15 to 17. And they come to Jesus and see him that was possessed with the devil and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell to him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray to him to depart out of their coasts. So they come and they find the man who had been possessed, sitting clothed and in his right mind. And this made them fearful because people fear what they don't understand. Because people fear changes that they can't discern or control. Now, they also feared because 2,000 pigs just plunged to their death. And this perhaps also made them upset because that's a lot of pigs, a lot of money, probably. So they begged Jesus to leave. And this is perhaps somewhat startling. This man has just showed power over an evil which none in that city had previously been able to control. And instead of humbling themselves before that power and that authority, their fear simply compelled them to want Jesus to go away. To get things back to a system where even if they, they had these demons roaming around, at least they were comfortable in that system. At least it was something that they could grasp. At least it was something that they could wrap their minds around. And in this we stop, it's here that we stop our exposition for this week. It's a very interesting thought as we think about that idea of them asking Jesus to leave after what he had done. But as we close, I'd like to apply in two fairly distinct directions this evening. One, a statement, and then the second, a question. First, the statement. The statement is this. Demonic possession is real. And its presence in our, is growing in our culture. Recall those attributes of demonic possession that we recognized in the passage. He was out of control. He was excessively strong. And he was in torment to the point where he engaged in self-harm. Now, we live in a culture which is ravaged under the term mental illness. In fact, the National Institute of Mental Health estimated that in 2021, one in five Americans, 58 million Americans, lived with mental illness. Now, the funny thing about the idea of mental illness is that it's a very broad and generally ambiguous umbrella term that includes a small subsection of problems that can be tested and proven and a very large swath of problems that are subjective, ambiguous, and completely outside of the power and understanding of medicine and psychology. And I suggest to you that the reason why this is is because there is that small subsection of mental illness that can be tested and proven. And then there is a large subsection that is not able to be so because it is spiritual in nature, not biological in nature. And that the la a large subsection of that which is spiritual in nature is demonic in nature. Now, by this, I'm not saying all mental illness is demonic possession. By this, I'm not saying all spiritual illness is demonic possession or even influence. But as we see mental illness rise in our country, it is in conjunction with and connection with two things. One is an absolute rejection of, of, of God's truth. And the second is a renewed interest in spiritism, in various, spirit, uh, in various spiritual things outside of the true and living God. And I do not believe personally that this is a coincidence. And I also recognize or believe that this is both among believers and unbelievers. Now, the church generally believes that born-again Christians cannot become possessed with an unclean spirit. And the reason why we generally believe that a believer cannot be possessed with an unclean spirit is because we are already, for lack of a better term, possessed with the Holy Spirit of God, right? That the Holy Spirit of God indwells the believer and that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God until the day of redemption. We at Legacy Baptist Church believe in eternal security. We do not believe that when a person accepts Jesus as their Savior and is sealed with the Holy Spirit of God, that he can become unsealed with the Holy Spirit of God. We do not believe that once a person is, un, is born again, he can become unborn, for that makes no sense spiritually, physically, biologically, or anything of the sort, uh, certainly theologically. And so we believe in eternal security. 
And in that, we would believe that a person who is indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God is not a candidate to then be possessed by or indwelled by a demonic spirit. Whereas among unbelievers, we, we can see throughout the scriptures, the testimony, and throughout uh, much anecdotal evidence throughout the known world, uh, that it is certainly possible for unbelievers to be physically possessed by unclean spirits. However, it is also possible, certainly possible, and even common in my experience, for believers to be able to be oppressed by demonic spirits. Demonic spirits who are able to oppress them mentally and spiritually, implant thoughts and lies into the minds of those whose minds are susceptible to those lies, often due to, again, in my experience, emotional and physical traumas, unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, the use of mind-altering substances. All of these are reasons why uh, the, a person might become susceptible to the oppression of demonic spirits. To this end, when we see these attributes of this demonically possessed man, they are perhaps familiar to us. If not in ourselves, maybe in loved ones or in friends or certainly in the culture at large. Out of control. In torment. In torment to, uh, unto a state of self-harm. These are things that we're finding to be quite prevalent within our culture today. We live in a culture where suicide is endemic and it is on the rise. Torment in people's minds, compelling them to self-harm. People who are absolutely out of control, grasping in the darkness, leading people to deny their very nature in vain attempts to find some measure of satisfaction, leading people to seek validation from strangers online or in person in order to stem the tide of their suffering and their sorrow, leading some to commit mass casualty events such as mass shootings as a means by which to find some sort of notoriety, fame, uh, some sort of something of meaning in their lives. And I think if we could peel back the curtain, we would find behind many of these things unclean spirits who are very busy and very effective in a culture that is running headlong in the opposite direction of biblical truth. And there's one more interesting characteristic of this man of Gadara that bears a striking resemblance to today. This man was filled with many demons, the Bible says, who referenced themselves in the collective. We, they, our. We live in a culture, a moment of cultural insanity, where individuals are insisting that they be recognized as a collective. And when we see this, we ask, where has this historically manifested itself? And the answer is, historically, it's manifested itself in demonic possession and oppression. Now, in this, I'm not saying that that young misguided nephew that you have who uses they, them pronouns is demonically possessed. For most people in this culture, they are caught up in what has been termed a social contagion, what used to be called peer pressure. Our young people are alienated from their elders whom God has given them to keep them stable and help them navigate their inevitable times of confusion within early life. They are placed perpetually in groups of their peers, and these peer groups are their primary, if not exclusive, influence. And so most of them are simply going along with this insanity for the sake of personal validation because that is what will get them praised. That is what will put them into the victim group that will make them, that will elevate them to someone special in society. And we recognize that to be true. Though for many, it will also come with lifelong damage and consequences. But at the center of this movement, Christian, there's no doubt in my mind that there's a group of men and women who call themselves they, them specifically because they are they, them. On TikTok, the, friend, the, the trend is called DID, Dissociative Identity Disorder. And it's in the DSM. It's, 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 it's a, considered a mental illness, but it's also a trend. These people say that they are part of a body system. And this is very popular on TikTok. Filled with multiple personalities, which each have names and functions in their body. Now, again, most of this is a silly fad. Generally, the people with disassociative identity disorder do not actually know of all of the identities within them. And so we recognize that if a person actually has that problem or they're schizophrenic or whatever it might be, they don't, they don't know of their alternate personas and personalities and such. But among a demonically possessed person, well, if history is anything to go by, they know. They know their names. There's interaction. Many of them do understand exactly what's happening with their, what are called familiar spirits. And they're familiars because they attach themselves to a person and there's interaction between them. 
At the center of this, then, when we peel through all the fad and all of the social contagion and all the peer pressure, at the center of this, it just screams demonic possession. Now, one of the things that we learn about demonic possession, both biblically and through anecdotal evidence, is that demonic influence is best fought with truth, repentance, and submission. It is likely for this reason that demonic influence was not an openly prevalent thing in the West until the past couple of generations because there was the general dominance of truth within our culture. But as truth goes away, and we all know truth is going away, our culture has become hostile to truth, in fact. You and I should expect a resurgence of open demonic possession and oppression around us. But the operative point is that you and I don't abide it having influence in our lives or in our homes. Now, all of what that looks like is beyond the scope of our time together. But if you are concerned that some of these struggles are your struggles or the struggles of those that you love, I encourage you, reach out to me and we can point you in the direction of some good resources that can help you. Let's move on to our second application and this is the question. Do you value comfort and control over God's presence and power? And this comes back to that idea that the people of Gadara saw what had happened and they asked Jesus to leave. The people of Gadara saw Jesus' marvelous power and authority and by all accounts, it truly scared them. And because they were scared and because this was different, they simply rejected it. And think about what it was that they rejected. They rejected the power of the creator God. They rejected the miracles of healing that we have seen in Galilee. They rejected the promise of his forgiveness that Galilee was experiencing at that time. But this is actually not necessarily too uncommon, is it, Christian? Everyone has a tendency, as we said, to fear that which they do not understand or that which they cannot control, or that which is beyond that which they've experienced before, that which is unknown. We see this with uh, even people that are in terrible situations, uh, addicts, abuse victims, and such. They so much fear the other side of that because they don't know what it looks like that they'd rather stay in the place of comfort and torment than go into the place of relief because they simply don't know what that looks like. And who's to say it could be worse? So why not just stay... Stay with the devil you know, right? And the power of God is both of these things, something that we don't understand and something that we cannot control. And it is not out of the realm of possibility that you or I could see the promises of God, of what God might do in us if we would let him of what God might do if we would but submit and trust and obey and actually fear it and say, I would rather not step into that unknown. I would actually rather stay in this place of fear or in torment or, 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 or just of comfort even. Just of comfort. I'd rather stay in this place with the things as I understand them today than step into those promises but not know into what I'm stepping. And though you might want that thing, and though you might imagine how wonderful it could be, your fear of change or your fear of failure or simply your natural comfort hinders you from being willing to invest in that reality, to trust the Lord to do those great things. We talked in Mark about how it is that we hear. Mark chapter four, right? That was the big theme of Mark four, how we hear. And one of those soils that Jesus gave at the beginning of Mark four was that shallow soil, right? The rocky soil, which was happy when the, when the seed of the word of God landed into that soil, that man was very happy and with, with gladness he received it and that, that, that seed sprung up quickly until the sun came out. And that sun represents, as Jesus interpreted it, the idea of persecution or difficulty. Another was the thorny soil, which again, gladly received the word of God and sprung up until the love for the things of this world overrode the things of God. And what happened in Gadara could have been either or both of those. That these people saw that man clothed and in his right mind and they saw the, the place where the swine were and now weren't because they're all in the ocean dead, not ocean, Sea of Galilee, the sea dead, 
And they saw that and they said, for all that, the potential in that man, I'm very fearful about what it might mean for me. This man who was out of his mind is now in his right mind. The man who was naked was now clothed. The man who was harming himself has now been delivered from the torment and compulsion of self-harm. But though they saw all of the potential of that power in their lives, they were afraid. And in that fear, they were unwilling to pursue its benefits because even as we talked about last week in our message on the crossing of the Sea of Galilee, that kind of fear is antithetical to faith. And Christian, let us not do the same. Let us not so value our comfort. Let us not so value our control. Let us not so value the things that we understand, even if we don't like those things, that we value them over the power and the presence of God in our lives. Let us not be driven by fear to reject truth. Let us be willing to follow that truth where it leads, and it may lead us to a place of sacrifice. It may lead us to a place of discomfort. It may lead us to weights and to burdens and to sorrows. We can, most of us can testify to that in our Christian lives. Uh, even as we talked about this morning, that Jesus says that, that those that bear fruit, he purges them that they may bring forth more fruit. It is a part of the Christian life that if we are fruit-bearing followers of Christ, he's gonna prune us back and that's not gonna be pleasant. But we all know full well that if we are simply willing to follow truth, that the rewards of truth far outweigh anything negative that it might introduce. And this is the long and short of what we find as it relates even to the demonic. That truth is the source by which we are freed from whatever it is, whether that be the various elements of, of the demonic, whether that be the elements of materialism and a love for this world, whether that be that fear of persecution or difficulty, they are all delivered in the same way. Faith in the truths of God. And so we say this evening as Joshua did in his day, be strong, Christian. He didn't say Christian. Be of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee, whithersoever thou goest. And that's true. As long as we don't, in fear or in apathy, ask him to leave our shores. And may we not do so this evening. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.